Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege of uh, speaking to you again, seeing you again, being with you again. Uh, it's nice to be here and to see friendly faces and familiar faces. This lesson or lecture, whatever you want to call it, uh, is entitled The Mystery of Christ. And I want to help you see the big picture up front. That's what we're looking at in this lesson. And covenant theology is a difficult subject because its scope, what it reaches to, is the entirety of the scriptures as well as the entirety of history. It's not a narrowly focused uh, discipline or a narrowly focused subject. It covers everything. And so when people ask me for a simple introduction to covenant theology, what they're really asking for is a simple introduction to the entire Bible. It's not that simple. Covenant theology studies God's dealings with man through covenants as God accomplishes his purposes throughout history. And in order to grasp and understand a subject such as this, it's important to lay down certain foundational principles or tools of interpretation and to see the big picture as much as possible from the beginning. And so what we're going to do is to develop our understanding of the mystery of Christ as a foundation and a guide for the rest of our study of covenant theology. And our outline is going to have three, three main headings or three main points if you'd like to write those down and follow along as we go. The first one, it's a little bit of a long heading, so it's not as pithy and short as I might prefer it, but here's our first point, which is the priority of the end and the unity of the plan. The priority of the end and the unity of the plan. If you go to the store and you buy a Lego set for yourself or for your son, <laughs> maybe for yourself, if you're buying a Lego set for you or for someone else, how do you know which one to choose? How do you make your choice? Well, what you do is you look at the box and you see what each set will be when you put all of its pieces together. I want this set, and I understand that when I put all the pieces together, it will make that set. The box shows the completed product, the completed set first. So also, at Ikea, if you tour their store and spend 40 years in the wilderness of Ikea, <laughs> or if you browse their website, how do you choose a piece of Swedish furniture? Well, you look at the picture on the box or the picture on the website, and you say, that is what this thing will look like after I turn an Allen wrench 5,000 times. You see the picture of the completed storage unit or the completed desk or the completed chair and you wonder what in the world those Swedish names mean that each one of their products has. But you know, if I turn a hex key, if I turn an Allen wrench enough times, that is what I will get. In each of these cases, you are interested in the end product. The Lego set or the piece 
of furniture. And in each of these cases, Lego set or Ikea furniture, you'll have instructions and pieces and parts. And you know that as you go from step one to step 20 or step 200 in the instructions, you have confidence that none of those steps is pointless. You have confidence that each one of those steps has a purpose and that each one of those steps adds up to the one final and complete product. Why do you have that confidence? Well, because when someone has a plan, it is the end of that plan, it's the goal or the product that controls the pieces that lead up to it. And no one would make an instruction booklet that builds one set of Legos in steps one through five and then builds a completely different set of Legos in steps 6 through 10. That wouldn't make any sense. So here's the principle that we need to grasp in this heading. There is a logical priority to the end that gives a unity to the steps that lead to the end. The thing that is at the end has a logical priority. And think of the word priority. You think of priority as importance, but it really means firstness, being first, being prior. So there's a logical priority to what is at the end. What is at the end is actually the first thing in your mind, but it's only at the end of many steps that lead to it. And so since everything you want to do leads to that end goal, there is a unity to those steps. They have a united purpose and plan that is all going to terminate at that end for which you have made plans. Now, if you would turn to me, turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 46, a verse, a passage mentioned by my father this, uh, just a few minutes ago in his lesson, Isaiah chapter 46. And we'll see that this is how God works. In Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9, the later part of verse 9, and then into verse 10, God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. So what can God do that no one else can do in the same way? God says, I declare the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is a perfect planner, and God is a perfect craftsman or artisan. And because he has perfect wisdom and perfect power, by virtue of his perfect wisdom and knowledge, he knows all that he can do. And by virtue of his perfect power, he can do it. He knows all that he can do, and he can do all that he wills or wants to do. So when God makes a plan, in his plan, there is a logical priority to the end of that plan. He decrees the end from the beginning. And because God is omniscient and omnipotent, everything that he plans will be accomplished. 
the end will be reached according to his plan, as God himself said, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So when God makes a plan, there are no do-overs, there are no dead ends, there are no alternatives, and there are no plan Bs. Rather, God decrees the end from the beginning, and that means that the steps that precede the end are part of the master plan of the master mind, and they will terminate in the final product. There is a priority of the end that infuses a unity into the plan or the steps that lead to the end. So this is our first point. The priority of the end and the unity of the plan for a God who decrees the end from the beginning and has the perfect wisdom and power to bring it all about. We then can ask the question, what is the end of God's master plan? What is the end of God's master plan? And that brings us to our second point, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. If God has decreed the end from the beginning and all things lead toward that end, what is the end? Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read part of verse 9 and verse 10. We'll pick up in the flow of Paul's expression where Paul says, making known to us that God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice these very important words that Paul uses, God's will, God's purpose, and God's plan specifically his will, purpose, and plan for the fullness of time. What is this master plan of the master mind, this purpose and will for all time? This is the end that is being declared from the beginning. It's to bring all things to unity and consummation in Jesus Christ. God's master plan is to bring all things to a unified completion or to a consummation in Jesus Christ. Now turn over two chapters with me to Ephesians 3, where Paul is going to narrow down his focus to part of that overall plan of unification and consummation. We're going to see a subset, this, this master consummation, this, this unification of all things has preceding unifications that coalesce to bring in the full consummation. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets 
by the Spirit. What is this mystery, Paul? What is it that was not made known previously with as much fullness and clarity as it has now been revealed? Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul tells us that part of this master plan to bring all things to unification and consummation in Jesus Christ, one of the narrowed focuses or or one of the things that is part of this master flow chart is that Jews and Gentiles will be united through the gospel. And this is what Paul calls the mystery of Christ. God's plan is to bring all things to unity and consummation in Jesus, and one of the branches or two of the branches that come together to form one is the unification of Jews and Gentiles in Jesus. And Paul says this was made known in former times, just not in the way that it has been made known now. Now it's made known in a, in a revealed and a clear and an open and a bright way. And Paul is saying, it's my special job. It's my special gifting from God that I get to tell the Gentiles about this, that I get to bring the mystery of Christ to the Gentiles and tell them all, join Jesus, join the Christ, believe the gospel. You are one with his people. Paul says this is the time of fulfillment, this is the time of unveiling, this is the time of explaining, this is the time of clarity, this is the time of fullness. So if God's end plan is to unite Jews and Gentiles, understanding that to be a subset of the the greater cosmic reconciliation that Jesus brings about, but if part of that master end plan is the unification of Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ— then we know that the preceding steps were all leading precisely to that end. And the preceding scriptures testify to this plan, but they do so as a mystery. When we talk about the mystery of Christ, it's kind of an improper way of speaking. It's what used to be a mystery and no longer is a mystery. It's what was a mystery in the Old Testament, and now it's, it's so revealed and made clear that it's no longer a mystery. But don't miss the point that Christ is made known, and the end plan is made known, and the unification of Jews and Gentiles, it's all made known in the Old Testament. That's what Paul, Paul is saying. But he's saying that now it's being unveiled and unpacked and, and made clear in it with a greater fullness It was previously partial and obscure, and now it is complete, and it is bright, and it is open. The mystery of Christ is the revealing of the end from the beginning, but in a shadowy, partial, and obscure way. Peter taught this same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. You can turn there if you like. It's a passage you've, you've heard many times probably or heard it referenced many times. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12, Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets of old were thinking about, were looking for, were trying to understand the salvation that has now been revealed inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets 
did prophesy the sufferings of Christ. They did prophesy the subsequent glories of Christ. And Peter goes on to say in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So Gentiles who have now received this salvation, Peter says the prophets were writing about your salvation, Gentiles, long ago in the times past and in the scriptures of the Old Testament. So this tells us, uh, we can sum it up in, in two things. The end of the plan was controlling not just the unfolding of historical events that lead to it, but the end of the plan was also controlling the previous revelation. God was revealing ahead of time what he was going to do. And so if the end of the plan gives a unity to all of the historical steps, this applies to the scriptures too. The scriptures have one author, and he has one plan, and therefore his revelation says one thing that the Jews and the Gentiles will be united in Jesus Christ as part of his cosmic reconciliation and consummation of all things. The end of the plan is the mystery of Christ, which is no longer a mystery. And the scriptures that precede Jesus Christ, therefore, we know with certainty it is an assumption. It's more than an assumption. It's a reality and a truth. I know that all of them, everything to the end of the prophets, is only going one place, and it's only revealing one thing, because there are no dead ends, there are no do-overs, there are no alternatives, there are no plan Bs in God's historical plans or in God's revelation. The apostles and Jesus himself, of course, taught this, that the Old Testament witnesses to Christ, it, it It declares the glories of Christ, the sufferings and subsequent glories, to use Peter's terminology. Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. He explained on the road to Emmaus all the things concerning himself. The apostles used the Old Testament to prove that what has happened is what was planned to happen, that God has not somehow changed the plan now. This was always the plan. They used the Old Testament to show that God's promises and God's purposes are being fulfilled and that the Jews simply failed to understand them. If you've ever wondered how it could be that the apostles seem to quote the Old Testament so freely in relation to Jesus Christ, it's precisely because they were convinced that there are no dead ends and therefore no dead letters in God's word. The end of the plan infuses a unity in all of the steps leading unto it, the end of the plan infuses the scriptures with a unity. The apostles showed the Jews that the Old Testament's testimony terminates in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. And the apostles used the Old Testament to show that the unification of Jews and Gentiles was always the plan. For example, Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 8, he says in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says this is scripture foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith. He's proving that what has happened is what was planned to happen. 
that God has not changed the plan or somehow said, oh, sorry, Israel, I'm actually going to, to switch things on you. No, Israel should have understood that the unification of Jews and Gentiles or the Jews and the nations in the Jewish Messiah, in the Christ, was always the plan. And so scripture foresees the future. In other words, the end of the plan, in, the end of the plan is controlling preceding revelation. The mystery of Christ in the Old Testament is just the shadow of Christ. He's ahead of the Old Testament in time. It's a a certain reality that's coming in the future. And his shadow is cast back. And so the Old Testament has a shadowy light of Jesus Christ. And in the New Testament, on the other side, it's just the brightness of his face. But it's the same, the, the shadow that is cast backward and the brightness that we see after him, it's all the same light, it's all the same revelation, it's all the same plan. He is the substance. We should therefore never read the Old Testament as something other than what testifies to Jesus Christ. If you remove Christ from the Old Testament, you you remove all life and hope from the Old Testament, and you make it just an interesting history book. Old Testament scripture without Christ is a barren orchard. It's a Jerusalem in ruins. But Old Testament scripture with Christ is a fruitful garden, a Jerusalem in glory. And so if you find yourself thinking, as you read Charles Spurgeon, I think he's spiritualizing a bit. Nope, he's not. Because the Old Testament is not about anything else. In the third place, the third heading is entitled, Seeing the Mystery. Or we might say seeing the reality, because again, it's, a, it's a, an improper way of speaking. If you're seeing the mystery, then it's not a mystery. So seeing the reality that was revealed as a mystery, but that's not a very good heading, is it? <laughs> so seeing the mystery. And in this heading, in this point, what we're going to do is not just to be convinced that the Old Testament points to and leads to Christ, but we want to explain how it does so. In what ways do we find in the Old Testament that Christ is revealed as a mystery or that the end of the plan is revealed mysteriously through, through the mode or way of mystery? Well, there's a number of ways that we see it. We see it, of course, through prophecy, which can be more or less direct, more or less clear. But we see Jesus, the sufferings and subsequent glories of Jesus, the unification of Jews and Gentiles in him, we see this in prophecy. We see this in progressive patterns, cycles and things that keep on getting repeated. We see this in typology, which we'll explain a bit more. But prophecies, progressive patterns, typology— All of these are ways that God, or ways in which God made the mystery known in the ages past. And I want to dedicate the rest of this lesson to two of those things that I mentioned, namely progressive patterns and typology. Because we will see the reality of Christ in the Old Testament, and we will see it was all leading to one planned end in progressive patterns and typology. If you go to a Christian bookstore with solid literature uh, or like a good seminary bookstore, you might see a section that's labeled biblical theology. 
And that might seem strange to you. You say, as opposed to unbiblical theology? <laughs> Why is there a section called biblical theology? That sounds tautological. It sounds like self-justifying. It, it sounds like a nothingness. It's biblical theology. But by now, I think that many churches or many Christians are familiar with what we mean by biblical theology. When you see a book or a section of books entitled Biblical Theology, it's, it's the name for tracing, de- developing themes and progressive patterns in the scriptures as God reveals more and more to his people over time. So biblical theology is watching revelation grow. It's watching patterns grow. It's watching uh, developing themes that, that grow organically over time as God gave more and more unfolding revelation to his people. And so biblical theology recognizes there are certain prominent themes and certain progressive patterns and certain cycles that are repeated throughout history and are marked in the scriptures, and all of these find their completion and fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his work. Why do all of these things repeatedly or repetitively or cyclically happen? It's because the master plan is controlling everything. There's a unity to the plan, and the end is controlling the steps that lead to it. For example, the theme of exile runs throughout Scripture from the garden onward. The theme of restoration from exile runs throughout Scripture from the garden onward. Related to this is the theme of exodus or liberation from captivity. Related to this is the theme of temple building and dwelling with God or God dwelling with man. Related to this is the theme of the Son of God, God's King on earth. Related to this is the mighty deliverer. Related to this is the theme of shepherding and bringing peace or the theme of sacrifice and atonement. Though all of God's plan and revelation is one united whole, biblical theology delights in looking at different threads and different strands of this united whole and seeing the development and the progressive unfolding of these patterns and these themes as God makes it clearer and clearer and shows more and more the mystery of Christ. I know that, that this church has been using uh, G.K. Beale's book that talks about redemptive reversals. There you go. That's another, uh, everything G.K. Beale has written. Just read all of it. All of his wisdom and insight that the Lord has given him into biblical theology, you're benefiting from that as he traces these redemptive reversals, all of which culminate in and terminate in Jesus Christ. So we see the reality, we see the mystery of Christ in the Old Testament through biblical theology, through progressive patterns, repetitions, and cycles that develop over time and terminate and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Another way in which we find the mystery of Christ in the Old Testament is through typology. What is typology? Well, simply put, if we can reduce it down to just two things, it's analogy and escalation. Analogy and escalation. What we mean by that, to expand it a bit, is that there are persons, there are institutions, there are events, and other things. We'll just create a huge broad basket category. Persons, events, institutions, and other things in the Old Testament that are analogous to 
to Jesus Christ and his work and his church and things related to Jesus Christ. And so there's analogy between the things that happen, the historical events, the historical persons, the historical institutions of the Old Testament. They have an, an um, what's the word I'm looking for? They have a correspondence, an analog that is Jesus Christ. But as you move from the type, from the first analog, to the anti-type, to the fulfillment, Jesus Christ and his covenant and his kingdom and all the things related to him, what happens? There's an escalation. There's a, a, a movement from the lesser to the greater as a type, this Old Testament person or, or, or thing or institution or event is pointing above itself and beyond itself to something other than itself and greater than itself. So there is analogy as the old makes the new known through mystery, but when the new comes, when Christ arrives, there is an escalation, an augmentation, a betterness. An old word for betterness would be a meliority. It should be obvious that biblical theology and typology go hand in hand. How is it that you trace these progressive patterns and cycles and themes and such things? Typology is a big part of how biblical theology identifies and traces God's progressive revelation. But what I want to do now is to draw your attention to the way that the scriptures themselves speak about the escalation, this movement from lesser to greater, from a type to an antitype. Typology is studying these types that are analogous to antitypes, but there's an escalation from type to antitype. I want you to see how the scriptures speak about these things. So would you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9? And this is very important and fundamental because we need to understand that when the antitype comes, when the fulfillment arrives, it's not a new version of the same thing. It's something new altogether and far better and superior and above and beyond the original or the first. Let's be specific. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read through verses 9 through 15, but we'll pause and make comments as we go. And there's going to be a, a <clears throat> contrast between animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant and Christ's sacrifice in the New Covenant. Verse 9, Hebrews 9, 9. According to this arrangement, the Old Covenant, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So notice with me that the old covenant and its ordinances, its cultic life, its outward covenantal life, it had food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body. It has an outward purification and it cannot achieve an inward purification. It cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can only give you an outward ceremonial cleanliness or holiness. 
And it says that these things were imposed or set in place by God until the time of Reformation, a time when they would be set aside and done away and something better and new would be introduced. Look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's pause. Notice in verse 11, the good things that have come. The Old Testament was longing for better things, and Jesus has brought the better things. The good things have come. What is the good thing that he has brought that the Old Covenant itself could not provide? We're told that Jesus entered a better sanctuary and offered a better sacrifice And by means of this, his own blood, he has secured at the end of verse verse 12, an eternal redemption. The better temple is heaven itself. The better sacrifice is Jesus' perfection, his obedience, and his innocence. And as Jesus presents himself, slain and risen from the dead, as Jesus presents himself in heaven, in the holy of holies not made with hands, as he presents his own blood before God, He brings about an eternal redemption that animal blood could never effect. This is reinforced in the following verses, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, this is all from the Day of Atonement, for if these things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, and the argument is, and they do, they do purify the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' sacrifice cleanses the heart. It cleanses the conscience. It purifies our conscience from dead works. And the argument is if the body was given a ceremonial cleanliness through animal blood, how much better will that cleanliness and purity and innocence and forgiveness be that Jesus gives us through his own blood? Now, were the animal sacrifices a type, a picture of Jesus' sacrifice? Yes, of course. They weren't some uh, unrelated thing just for fun. They were designed to be a picture. And yet, the types themselves are are weak and deficient because as elsewhere the writer to the Hebrews says, there's a reminder of sin in those sacrifices and they cannot perfect the conscience of the one who tries to draw near to God through animal blood. So animal sacrifices did do something. They purified the flesh. They let you continue to live in Canaan. They give a forgiveness of reprieval not to be destroyed in Canaan. They had a real effect. They had a real purpose. The animal sacrifices were not just some show and nothing more. They really functioned in the old covenant. But they only went so far. The purification of the flesh, the washing of the body. And when Jesus appeared and brought the better things that have come, the good things that have come, an eternal redemption... Did he simply bring about phase two of the same thing? Or did he bring about something altogether new and better? 
Look at Hebrews 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, 1. For since the law, the Mosaic covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So is Jesus simply an old covenant sacrifice in a new form? No. The whole argument is that he's not an animal and he's not a mortal Levite. He's God in the flesh. He is innocent and obedient and he offers a better sacrifice that gives us a better redemption that lasts forever and ever and does not need to be repeated. So I want you to take this biblical description of the analogy between a type and an antitype and the escalation from a type to an antitype, and I want you to see the nature of that escalation. It's not two phases or forms of the same thing, but rather it's two things that are different but related through God's revelation and related because God's end plan is controlling the unity of history and revelation that lead to it. Animal blood does cleanse the flesh, but it does not cleanse the conscience. Christ's sacrifice alone cleanses the conscience. And so in the author to the Hebrews argues that the new covenant is established on better promises because it provides better promises, blessings that the old covenant in itself could not give. Typology, therefore, helps us to see the unity of Scripture. God was revealing the future through those animal sacrifices. And the end of the plan was controlling the preceding steps. The final revelation was controlling the initial revelation, and it's all a united whole. But at the same time, typology helps us to see that the unity of history and the unity of Scripture does not make everything the same. Types and antitypes are different things. Animal blood and Jesus' blood are two different things. So how does this help us in our study of covenant theology? Well, we've seen some very important fundamental principles in a subject whose scope is as broad as the entirety of the Bible and all of history. And as we proceed, we must do so understanding that there is a priority to the end, a firstness. The end is decreed first, logically, which infuses the unfolding steps of the plan with a perfect unity. God decrees the end from the beginning and accomplishes his purpose. There are no revisions. There are no remakes in his plan. And the apostles have taught us that God's end plan is to bring all things to unification and consummation in Jesus Christ, including as the, the coalescing in the process of coalescence, including the, un, the unification of Jews and Gentiles through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we might say better, the unification of Jews and Gentiles in Jesus Christ through the gospel. And therefore, historical events and divine revelation that precede Jesus Christ lead to and reveal 
Jesus Christ. And we see this, in, I said, in prophecy, in biblical theology or developing patterns and themes, and in typology and more. The Old Testament is full of Jesus Christ because God is not writing about anything else and he's not building anything else in history. In conclusion, here's another principle that we need to affirm. We must affirm historical unity but deny substantial identity. Let me explain what that means. We must affirm historical unity but deny substantial identity. Pascal, in just a moment, or later this evening, will talk about differences between Baptists and Paedo-Baptists. Let me just briefly touch on that for a moment here and leave it to him to explain it in greater fullness. It's, and this applies not just to Paedo-Baptists, but also to some Baptists also. All of the covenants of Scripture play a part in revealing Jesus Christ and moving history towards him. The end controls the steps leading to the end. So all of the covenants in Scripture, they're all connected to Christ and they're all playing a role in moving history towards him. And that's the historical unity of covenant theology. God did not covenant with man for other ultimate ends and goals apart from his master plan, and God's covenants do not lead down different paths. And this is, if I could actually pause the things I was going to say to some of our Baptist brethren and Paedo-Baptist brethren, this, this is also an area where we need to charitably engage our dispensational brethren, who, for some of them, would think of the unfolding of God's dealings with man in history in terms of redos or do-overs or a new way of doing things and then a new way of doing things and then another way of doing things and so on and so forth in the dispensations of history as they understand the scriptures to teach them. And we would say, no, the, the end of the plan, which is clearly revealed in Ephesians and elsewhere in the scripture, is controlling everything leading up to it by the God who decrees the end from the beginning and will accomplish all his purpose, and there are no dead ends, there are no do-overs, there are no revisions, there are no remakes, there is no now something else and now something else. It's all one united plan that doesn't end with Israel over here and the church over here, but ends with Jews and Gentiles united in Jesus Christ through faith in the gospel. And so we affirm a historical unity that our dispensational brethren Uh, do not necessarily see or they do not see it in the same way that we do. And this is one way in which we can charitably engage and, and try to help our brothers in a humble manner, but a sincere manner to say, God declares the end from the beginning. He's told us what the end is. All the steps lead to that. This is not Jews and Gentiles separate or Israel and the church separate. This is all things united and consummated in Jesus Christ. So we affirm historical unity But we also deny substantial identity, and this is where we come back to address our some Baptist brethren and some and our Paedo-Baptist brethren for the most part, where in much of Reformed covenant theology, there has been a tendency to to see all of the covenants after Adam, or most of the covenants after Adam, as all being the same covenant just 
in different outward forms or administrations. And so these are all what they would call the covenant of grace. And the new covenant is simply the last and final administration or outward form of the covenant of grace. So they're going to see a substantial identity. Identity meaning sameness. Substantially, all these covenants are the same. Abraham, Moses, David, New, for some, even the Noahic covenant. It's all the covenant of grace. Substantial identity. And they, one of the reasons why they affirm that is because they also affirm the unity of the plan, that, that God has been doing one thing throughout all history. And we say, yes, there is a unity of the plan, a unity of history. But that doesn't mean that all of the steps that led to it were the same thing. All of the steps, yes, were in a united manner leading to the end. There's, we agree against our dispensational brethren that God does not have this, then that, then this, then that, or the end being this and that. There is a historical unity and a unity of the plan, but just because the end is controlling the steps that lead to it, that doesn't mean that the preceding steps are the same as the end. So we deny, or ought to deny, substantial identity. But why? Well, many of the arguments come from typology, because the old covenant cannot cleanse the conscience. And if it cannot cleanse the conscience because it offers a forgiveness of reprieval and a purification of the flesh coming from animal blood, it is not the new covenant based on Christ's blood that does perfect the conscience. And for the same reasons, but through other arguments, we would apply this to Abraham and to David and to Noah and say that they themselves are not the new covenant, and the new covenant alone is the covenant of grace, the covenant of saving grace, the covenant that saves and has saved all mankind from Genesis 3 onward. So we affirm a historical unity, one plan, always, only, and ever one plan from the God who decrees the end from the beginning. But that does not, it does not necessarily follow, it's a non sequitur, it does not follow that the preceding covenants that led to it are the same covenant in different outward forms. I'm, I'm, I'm trespassing on Pascal a little bit, so I need to stop. But I wanted to, to just finish the thought and land the plane of why these principles are important and where are they leading? Why do we say these things? Well, we say them ultimately because we're convinced they come from Scripture. We should not be convinced of a theological system's end and then try to argue everything towards it. That's not the way we should do, do theology. But we can. We could certainly commit that error. Let's not do so. We're convinced because of the way that the Scriptures speak about the Old and New Covenants, the way that they speak about types and antitypes. We affirm a historical unity, but we ought to deny a substantial identity with the other covenants. They all contribute. They all are part of God's master plan. We do not affirm covenants doing or going anywhere else or anything else. But that does not make them all the same covenant. The rest of, the, the rest of my lessons in this conference tomorrow will develop how God has used covenants progressively over time to unfold a united plan, the end of which is that Jesus Christ will unify and bring to consummation all things for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we 
marvel at you as we did in the previous hour and your greatness. We make many plans, but it is only when you establish them that they come to be. But all that you declare and decree comes about. It comes to pass. And we thank you that all that you swear, all that you promise, all that you pledge, all that you covenant is sure and certain unto us because you accomplish your purposes and do all your holy will. We praise you and we adore you. We also ask that you would cause us to study this subject with humility, that you would cause us to study this subject not in a way that puffs us up and causes us to look down on others or attack others, but that it might lead us to praise and worship and joy as we better understand your scriptures and the history of the world that you have created and the end for which and unto which you have made this world, your glory in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.